It's my honor today to introduce uh, Christian Bland uh, to you all. Uh, he is a um, seminary student uh, at Westminster West in, in San Diego, California, uh, and he is uh, in his final year there. He's also a uh, candidate for our assistant pastoral position uh, that we have uh, posted and, and you've all been praying about, um, and uh, we have the privilege to hear him speak today. Christian. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1, 5 through 2, 2. This is a letter from the Apostle John, and he opened his book, uh, reminding his readers that this is a message that he heard from Jesus himself, that he is an eyewitness to the things that Jesus did and said, and that he is proclaiming that message that he received from Jesus to us. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2, and pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to all of us this morning. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Please pray with me. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this word that you have given to us, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for guiding us with your word, for calling us to confession, and reminding us of your gospel. Would your spirit illuminate, our, uh, illuminate your word in our hearts and minds, Take away any distraction, any sinful thoughts that might obstruct the hearing of your word. And would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the fight between light and darkness, good and evil, is an age-old story. Ancient religions like Zoroastrianism believed that there were two gods eternally at war, a good god and an evil god, and they were equally powerful and eternally at war, and the follower of Zoroastrianism had to do good things and live a good life in order to help the good god win, in order to help him uh, in the fight between light and darkness. So they believed that there was a light side of the universe and a dark side of the universe with a light God and a dark God and that people had to choose the light side. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot like Star Wars to me. <laughs> Star Wars movies portray the continual war between light and darkness with the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. And you can kind of see that in the way that they dress up you know, Darth Vader is wearing all black, and the, the, the Jedis usually wear light colors. Their lightsabers are colored specifically, depending on which side they're on. 
And that's kind of like the old Western movies, you know? The good guys in the Western films always wore white hats and the bad guys wore black hats. And that was to, to, to cue us in to this fight between good and evil, light and darkness. The symbolism is clear. The light symbolizes uh, justice and goodness and the dark symbolizes evil and hate. And that's what <clears throat> the light side and the dark side symbolize in Star Wars. But in Star Wars, the war is eternal and the goal is simply to have balance between light and dark. One is not meant to triumph over the other, but they desire balance in the force. But in our passage today, God teaches us about the struggle between light and dark in real life, but this is not an eternal struggle. We're not seeking balance. Instead, we're told God is light, and if he is light, that means darkness is passing away and will soon be obsolete. He is fighting against darkness, and so darkness is doomed to be conquered by God. And the only question for us is which side are we on? Are we on the light side or the dark side? And if we are not on the light side, how can we switch to the light side? Do we have fellowship with God or are we his enemies? John teaches us that because God is light, in order to be in fellowship with God, we must walk in the light. So we'll consider our passage in the three points you see on the screen, God's light, walking in darkness, and then walking in the light. John opens our passage in verse 5 with the words, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The first way that we can call God light is in his very being. God is light because he is holy. He is distinct and unique from everything else in the universe because he is the creator of the universe. He's the only thing that has ever existed that was not created by him. He's one of a kind. There's a two-class system in our universe, creator and creature, and because God is creator, he is holy and distinct and light. This is the light that Paul wrote about in 1 Timothy 6.16. He said, God alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God dwells in unapproachable light because he is holy. God is like the sun, which we can't look at too closely or it will hurt our eyes. We can't get too close. His light is so brilliant, it's unapproachable. But God, like the sun, lights up the world around us, giving life and revealing to us the world around us so we can see where we're going. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So God is light because he reveals to us the world around us. We can see the world by God's light. Just as we call God's word a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, so God is the same. He reveals it to us. He guides us with his word as we walk by faith. C.S. Lewis said something similar to, to Psalm 36 in a famous quote. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And this is one way that God is light. By God's word to us, we see everything else. He is our standard for truth and goodness. And so God is light because he is holy, but also because he reveals to us truth. But there's another way that God is light that I'm sure came to your minds immediately, 
And I think it's in the forefront of John's mind in verse 5 as well. To say God is light brings to mind the fight between light and darkness, good and evil. We might say that if God were in a Western movie, he would wear a white hat, or if he were in Star Wars, he'd be on the light side. God is light, which means he is a hero without any villainous tendencies at all. He is good morally. He is perfect without any sinful inclination, without any evil in his mind or in his actions. He is without flaw, perfect. And this makes the God of the Bible very different from the God of other religions. We think of, uh, I already talked about Zoroastrianism, which believes in dualism, where there is a bad God that's equally powerful as the good God. That's not the case with our God. He is perfect, and no one can approach him because he is holy, he is distinct. No one is his equal. Other religions don't believe in dualism, but their gods are a mix between good and evil. You might think of the Greek gods of Greek mythology. Gods like Zeus or Hermes were troublemakers. They did many evil things. They were violent, sexually promiscuous. You never knew what they were going to do. They could do anything on a whim. Even Plato, that ancient philosopher, said that these ancient Greek myths were dangerous for children because they taught them that evil, doing evil, was godlike. But here we read that God is light. He couldn't be any more different than these other gods. He's not a mix of good and evil, nor is evil his equal. God never does anything evil or sinful, but he is perfect in every way. Some people answer the question of why there is evil and bad things in the world by saying that we need something compare, to compare good to. We can only know what is good by experiencing what is bad. But that's not true. God does not need evil in any way. He is light, and he does not need darkness to show his light. The God of Scripture, who is the God of the universe, is all-powerful and all-good. We don't have to choose one or the other. And there's great comfort for us in this. There's great comfort for us to know that God is different than the gods of the ancient Greeks or the God of Zoroastrianism. God is not evil or capricious. We never have to question whether he will do the right thing. We never have to question his motives or his, his disposition toward us. Just as we read in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And this is like what John is saying in our passage. He's comforting us, telling us that God is light he can never tempt us with darkness, and he himself cannot be tempted with darkness. So if we want to be in fellowship with God, we must walk in the light. God will have no fellowship with darkness, just as we heard in verse 6. He said, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So just as light and dark are incompatible, so so fellowship with God is incompatible with walking in darkness. And if we've, if we've defined light as moral perfection, God's perfect morality, his sinlessness, then darkness is the exact opposite of that. It is sin. It is imperfection. And so because God is light and we must walk in the light to have fellowship with him, we see that God's own moral character determines how we ought to walk. We ought to walk in light as God is light. 
We see this in the commandments that God gives us. His commands are a reflection of his own character. When God says, do not lie, it is because God himself never lies. We read that, I think, in Titus 2, God never lies, and so we ought not to lie either. And so God's own light determines how we ought to walk in the light. In order to be in fellowship with God, our character must reflect God's character. We must follow his commands, which reflect his moral character. And so to walk in the light means to avoid evil and do what is good. It means to do things that God would do, to follow his law, follow his character. And of course, this immediately poses a problem for us. We are sinful. We're humans. We make mistakes every day. We are unable to walk in the light. We're unable to do what what we're required to do. We are in darkness. We often don't even know what we do or why we do it. And if we set a low bar for ourselves, we can consider ourselves good people. You know, we're not murderers. We're not thieves. We're pretty good. We're decent. But the bar that John sets for us is God's own light, God's moral perfection is the standard that we are held to in this passage. Just as God said to Israel, you must be holy as I am holy. We must be light as God is light, but our very nature renders us unable to live up to God's standard. But John knows this. He knows our sinful nature. Just as he said in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We cannot deny that we have sin. He says the same in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John tells us a few things. He says God is light and you must walk in the light in order to be in fellowship with God. But he also says that we are in darkness. We cannot say that we do not sin. We are sinful in darkness. So not only are you a liar if you claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, you're also a liar if you claim to not walk in darkness. And so it seems like we are incompatible with light, with fellowship with God. And so we see that this truth that God is light is a comfort, yes, but it is also a terror for us who are not in the light. We are sinful, and so God's light is a terror to us. It is a threat of judgment. We do what is opposite of light. We often transgress God's law. We are unable to walk in the light as he is. But we also walk in darkness in another way. We not only do sinful things, but we also hide those actions in the darkness. We want to keep our sins a secret, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. When they sinned, they hid themselves when they heard God coming. And when God confronted Adam and said, what did you do? Adam pointed to his wife. He would not take responsibility. He would not own up to his sins, and we do the same thing. Jesus said this in John 3.20, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Coming to the light, coming to God in fellowship would expose our sin, and so we often avoid that. Or at least we avoid thinking about God's light, thinking about God's holiness, because the reality of God's holiness alone condemns us because we fall utterly short of it. The more that we acknowledge God's perfection and goodness, the more that we see our own imperfection and sinfulness. And we do not like to be shown our sinfulness for the most part. 
And in response to that, we lie about our sin. We deny it. We don't want to own up to the fact that we sin, that we are not matching God's standard. We pretend like we're innocent, like it isn't obvious how guilty we are, like it isn't obvious how sinful we are. This idea reminds me of a video that I watched with my wife on the internet. There are a couple that are like it, but it's usually a parent talking to their child and asking the child, did you eat, you know, did you eat the chocolate that was on the counter? And the kids, no, I did not eat the chocolate. I didn't eat the chocolate. And the parent's like, well, why are your hands and face covered in chocolate? (laughs) One video, a girl uh, was sitting there with her brother. They both ate these chocolate donuts. And the girl said, my face is covered in chocolate because he rubbed the donut on my face. This is like what we do in our own lives with our sin. We, we pretend like our guilt isn't obvious to our Father who knows everything in heaven. It's like our faces are covered in chocolate and we're trying to pretend like we didn't eat the chocolate cake or donuts. We lie. We hide our sin to our Father who knows everything. We might walk into church with an angry expression still on our face from a fight that we had in the car on the way over. And don't get me wrong, the, the, ride, the car ride to church is a battleground, for sure. But as soon as we talk to somebody in church, we act as if we've never fought before in our lives. We might have just said something unkind about someone, but as soon as they enter the conversation, we act as if they're our best friend. Someone might walk into the room after we've looked at something that we shouldn't have looked at, and we act as if we don't even know what those things are. Whatever our sin, and however we hide it, we all at some point, try to keep our sins in the dark, and we avoid the light. But we also keep our sins in the dark by denying that we sin in the first place. See, sin is not a popular subject in the world today. Many people try to deny that there is such thing as sin, that morals are relative, and this is not new. John said in verses 8 and 10 that people try to say that they have no sin, or that they have never sinned. And these two things are very slightly different. Verse eight says, if we say we have no sin, and having sin points to a sinful character or nature. And so to say you have no sin means that you have no sinful nature. And this is a very popular thought in the world today. The average American would agree that humans are essentially good, even though they make mistakes every once in a while. We are inherently good. Verse 10 says, if we say we have never sinned, which implies that there is no such thing to begin with, that you can't even commit a sin because there's no such thing as sin. And some people today even do this. Like I said, they, they argue that all morality is relative and that nobody can tell somebody else what is good or bad. And by doing these things, we make God out to be a liar because God tells us in his scripture that sin is real. And we lie. We not only lie ourselves, we make God out to be a liar. We see this all over scripture where God tells us that we sin and that we have a sinful nature. Romans 3 is the best example. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And our own experience confirms this when we look around the world. 
reading the news, we know that there is something wrong in the world around us. When we hear about shootings, we know there is evil in the world. You know, the, the most staunchly uh, moral relativist can't deny that there's evil in the world when they hear about such things. Even in our own lives, when people lie to us, they hurt us, they betray us, we know there is sin when we look around us. But even when we look in our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there is sin in our own hearts. Because it turns out, Western movies and Star Wars movies are too simple. It's not, your moral status isn't determined by the clothes that you wear or the lightsaber that you carry. The line that divides good and evil is not defined by country borders or political parties. The line that divides good and evil cuts through each of our hearts. By nature, we are unable to do the things of God. We are unable to walk in the light. By nature, we walk in darkness, not only by sinning, but also by hiding our sins. And if we walk in darkness, how can we have fellowship with God? If we, if we live in sin and if we hide our sins, how can we have fellowship with a God who is light? Well, that brings us to our third point. God knows that we are sinful by nature, so he gave us his word in 1 John to teach us how to walk in the light. And so he commands us in response to our sinfulness and our, our, our ability to hide our sin, he commands us to walk in the light by confessing our sins. We read in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So walking in light means not keeping our sins in the dark, but bringing, to them, bringing them to the light by confessing them, by bringing them to God, by telling him that we have committed sin. Exposing, Jesus said, those who walk in darkness do not come to the light because the light would expose their sins. We're commanded here to expose our own sins to God by coming to the light in confession. And we can do this in a few different ways. We can confess our sins. Of course, we did it today, this morning. We confessed our sins corporately and then privately in our hearts to the Lord. <clears throat> but we can also confess our sins in private prayer. The, the principle is we confess our sins to whomever we have sinned against and whoever knows our sin. And of course, we always sin against God first and foremost, and he knows all of our actions, even all our sins, and so we always confess our sins to God in prayer. As David said in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. And so we always confess our sins to him. But if we sin against another person or if other people hear about our sins, we also confess it to them. We confess it as publicly as uh, whoever knows our sin, we confess it to and when we confess our sins, we don't just confess our, our sinfulness. We don't just confess that we have a sinful nature and that we sin in general ways. We're told in the, in, in the confession, the Westminster Confession, we're told to confess particular sins particularly. And that means confessing our anger, our impatience, our laziness, and confessing those particular instances in which we become angry in which we become impatient. Not just, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm, I'm sinful, but I'm sorry, I have been angry today. I have yelled at my family. Particular sins, particularly. 
But when we confess, that doesn't even give us a license to continue sinning. It's not that whenever you confess your sins, whenever you bring them to the light, you're able to continue to do those things afterwards. You're not given a license to live how you want. Because one part of walking in the light is confessing our sins, and the other part is obeying. 1 John 2, 1 said, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See, walking in the light means a life, a life of repentance. And repentance means confessing our sins and turning away from them. It means trying our hardest to do what is right and confessing our sins to the Lord when we do what is wrong. But how does this work? How can God be just to forgive our sins, as we read in verse 9. A just judge condemns a guilty person. It is actually unjust to acquit a guilty person. And we know that God is perfect, and we know that he is just, and that we are unjust and imperfect. And so it would be just for God to punish our sins. For example, we read in Exodus 34, 7, we do read that God is a forgiving and loving God, but that he will by no means clear the guilty. But God promises in verse 9 to forgive our sins, in other words, to clear the guilty. How is this possible? How can God make this promise? How can a perfect God accept anything except perfection? How can a God who is light accept someone who is not in the light? Well, it is not simply that God lowers the bar. He does not, set, he does not accept confession in the place of obedience. He doesn't change the standard or the expectation or the requirement. Instead, because God loved us and he did not want to leave us out of fellowship with him, he gave us his only son, Jesus. And he, Jesus, is the only way that we can have fellowship with God. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned, he never walked in darkness. Not only did he, he not hide his sins, he had no sins to hide. He was perfect his whole life. And that's why John calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In 2 verse 1, he is perfectly righteous and he's the only person to ever live perfectly in the light by obeying God. And, and Jesus not only walked in the light, he himself is the light. We read this in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. The Father did not want to leave us in the darkness, so he sent us a great light to reveal to us the way of salvation, the way of the light. And Jesus not only reveals to us the way of the light, he himself is the way to salvation. John said in 1236, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. Dear friends, Jesus is the light and believing in him is the only way that we, that we can become children of the light, the only way that we can walk in the light and become children of God. And Jesus is able to bring us into fellowship with God. He's able to make us children of the light because he cleanses us from our darkness with his own blood. This is what we read in 1 verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' death opened up the way to fellowship with God. And it's so ironic, his bloody crucifixion is what cleanses us from our sin. And that's because Christ's death 
satisfied God's justice on our behalf. God is a just God who requires punishment of sin, but instead of punishing us, he punished Christ on the cross. This is what we read in 2 verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This word propitiation, it's a, it's a fancy word. It just means appeasement or, or satisfaction. It means Jesus appeased God's wrath for us. He was a sacrifice of propitiation that satisfied divine justice and reconciled us to God. And when he says the whole world, he's showing us that Jesus is not a tribalistic God. He's not just the savior of some people, nor is he one way of salvation among many options, but he is the only way of salvation in the whole world. Anyone in the whole world who trusts Jesus will be cleansed by his blood, and his blood is the only way to walk in the light. There's no other option. Jesus died to cleanse us from our sin and bring us into fellowship with God, but he did not just die for us. He was also raised to life for us, and he continues to live for us. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, continually making intercession for us. This is what we read in 2 verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As our advocate, Jesus is our lawyer or our mediator. When we confess our sins, he ensures that no accusation may be brought against us. He ensures that his blood cleanses us and no one can bring an accusation. No one can claim that we are not forgiven. He prays for us. Jesus, our high priest, prays for us at the Father's right hand, ensuring that we endure and that we confess our sins and resist our sins. And he gives us the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and sanctifies us. He gives us a spirit who gives us life and enables us to confess our sins and to turn away from them. Zoroastrianism and other similar religions teach that if you want to be in fellowship with God, you need to do good things, to be a good person. But God's standard is much higher than just generally being a decent person. He expects perfection. He holds, he holds us to his moral perfection as standard. And we are naturally in darkness, not in the light. So even if we try really hard to be a good person, we'll fail day in and day out. So it's not a matter of just trying really hard to be good. We cannot walk in the light if our heart is dark. We cannot do good things if our heart is sinful, and so we need a change of heart. We need to be converted from darkness to light. Our nature needs to change from the inside out. And this is just what Jesus does for us. He changes us. He changes our heart. He converts us and regenerates us. The Father and the Son send their Holy Spirit to us who gives us new life. And we can only convert from darkness to light by the Holy Spirit's work. We can't do it ourselves. Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, that the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus accomplished 
everything that was necessary for our salvation. His blood was everything that was necessary to cleanse us from sin and convert us to light. And the Holy Spirit applies that blood to us today. The Holy Spirit applies what Jesus did 2,000 years ago to us today when we come to Christ in faith. This is what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2, 1, that the Spirit sprinkles us with Christ's blood, making us holy and cleansing us from our sin. And this is how we can walk in light as he is in the light because the Spirit regenerates us and works in our heart, converting us from darkness to light. And now that we have been delivered from darkness by faith in Jesus because of the Spirit's work, we are called to continue to walk in the light. We are called to leave the darkness behind us. And so <clears throat> these two things that we have seen in our passage today, repentance and faith, these are what ought to characterize our lives as Christians. We've seen that we must put our trust in Jesus as we saw in, in chapter two, verses one and two, our Jesus who is our propitiation and our great high priest, our advocate. We have to put our faith in him and we ought to always confess our sins as we saw in one, verse nine, faith and repentance. Now that we have been cleansed from sin by the spirit who sprinkled our hearts with Christ's blood, we must continue to confess our sins, having our hearts continually cleansed by Christ's blood, as we read in 1 verse 9. See, it's true, our, all of our sins are forgiven when we come to Christ, but we continue to sin. We continue to dirty ourselves, our minds, our consciences, and so we need to be continually cleansed, our hearts and our consciences. Not that there is anything that we can do to lose our forgiveness or our standing with God, but that we ourselves need this cleansing, as we read in 1.7 and 1.9. I'll close with this. <clears throat> the night before Jesus was betrayed, he washed his disciples' feet, and he did this as an illustration for us of his, of his humility and sacrifice, but also of the Christian life, of being continually cleansed by Christ. Peter thought that that he was too good, or that Jesus was too good to wash his feet, so Peter tried to stop Jesus, but Jesus said, you will have no part in me if I don't wash your feet. And when Peter heard this, he decided that it wasn't good enough that Jesus just washed his feet, and so he asked Jesus to wash his head and his hands as well, but this was Jesus' answer to Peter. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. See, this is what the Christian life is like. We are washed completely, our whole selves, when we come to Christ and when the Spirit regenerates us and renews us. But because of our continual sin, we need to be continually cleansed, like the washing of the feet. We dirty ourselves, and so we need to come and confess our sin. And when we do that, the Spirit cleanses us again with Christ's blood. And Christ himself intercedes for us, ensuring that we are forgiven. No one can accuse us. He prays for us to persevere, and he gives us this spirit. So, dear friends, let us rest in Christ, our great high priest, who prays for our salvation and sanctification, who offered himself up as a sacrifice to reconcile us to God and cleanse us from our sin, and whose blood cleanses us from sin day after day as we confess to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you and praise you enough for what you have given us in Christ. We are in darkness by nature, and yet you have not been satisfied to leave us in that darkness. 
you have brought us into fellowship with you by your very Son. We thank you and we praise you for this, O Lord, for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, for not only providing us his blood to cleanse us when we come to Christ in faith, but also to cleanse us with that blood whenever we sin and confess our sins. Not only have you justified us by your grace, you sanctify us by your grace as well. And so we thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit who not only regenerates us, but who sanctifies us and who applies Christ's work to us today. Oh Lord, we ask that your word would take root in our hearts and flow out into our lives so that we might bring you glory and honor and give thanks to you for your great works of salvation. We could never cleanse ourselves or walk in perfection. So we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.